0: Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Leila Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simri McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Vrend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. Welcome to our listeners, and thank you for joining us today to hear more about social anxiety. So, social anxiety is one of the most common concerns or referral reasons that we see in our clinical practice, particularly amongst older children and teens. We've also been noticing an increase in social anxiety in recent months, and you know, it could possibly be related to COVID restrictions, which are lifting um because many children haven't had a whole lot of practice over the last couple of years socializing or leaving their house on a regular basis or being back to in-person school. So we have seen that there may be a correlation there and we thought it would be a good idea to talk about social anxiety in a podcast episode for this reason. So perhaps we can start our discussion today by defining what social anxiety is for our listeners and talk a little bit about how prevalent it is in children and teens. So Dr. Mary, could you please tell us a little bit about social anxiety?
1: So social anxiety disorder, it's actually also called social phobia. And it's a type of anxiety where there's this very excessive and persistent fear of social situations and or performance situations. So even though it's normal for all of us to get nervous in certain situations, like giving a big presentation or writing a test, this type of anxiety is a lot more significant and it interferes with our daily functioning the anxiety ends up being around situations where we feel like we're being observed by others or in situations where we're interacting with others and The kinds of circumstances that might be really challenging for someone with social anxiety. These might be things like public speaking, you know, which a lot of people have anxiety around, Um, but also things like answering questions in class, maybe speaking up in a group of people, um, possibly meeting new people, going to parties. Things like dating can be really challenging. Um, Standing up and expressing their opinions can be difficult. Um, Engaging in group work, talking on the phone, maybe doing a driving test, Um, even things as simple as writing or eating in front of other people um, or walking into a classroom where everyone is sitting. So you can see that there are a lot of examples that um, can come into play as part of everyday life. And in these cases, individuals often feel really self-conscious or they might feel embarrassed and they have this real sense of being scrutinized or negatively judged by other people. They also might be afraid of being embarrassed or rejected by their friends. So that's another thing that comes into play with social anxiety. Um, The other thing that can be a very big deal for someone with social anxiety is that they have an intense fear of other people noticing them feeling anxious. Um, So they might feel like everyone in the room, for example, is noticing that Their voice is really shaky or that their body is trembling or they might be blushing or that sort of thing so the physical symptoms on their own can actually produce some anxiety as well um, which is really difficult for these individuals to deal with Um, they also often experience thoughts around things like no one's going to talk to me, Um, I'll get anxious and other people will know. So there's this, there are the physical symptoms, but there are also these really negative thought patterns that come up pretty commonly um, with social anxiety. Um, One thing that I just wanted to mention quickly as well is that in these situations where someone is feeling anxious, what happens is that their bodies end up going into this um, nervous system response that we call a fight, flight, freeze, or 3F response. Um, and basically, what happens is that our nervous system ends up getting activated in these social situations because our brain misperceives them as being threatening and ends up activating this response that's intended to keep us safe. Um, So if we were actually faced with a real threat to our survival, this is the same response that our body would go into. Um, So, for example, we might freeze um, or feel an intense urge to avoid a situation, and that can really affect important things for us like school and relationships um, and just our ability to participate in things that are important to us.
0: And you bring up a lot of important points about, you know, at the core, why social anxiety happens and how um, a lot of it has to do with fears of humiliation and rejection or embarrassment. And You know, I think we see a lot of uh, social anxiety occurring in adolescence because it's a time where social status is so important, right? For teenagers, especially in high school, it's all about social status and wanting to be liked by peers, wanting to have friends or large friend groups. Um, And so that's probably why we see higher rates in the adolescent period versus compared to older adults, right? Um, okay. Thank you for that. Lots of great information. So Dr. Jen, how common is social anxiety in children and teens and are some kids more likely to have it compared to others?
2: Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, you know, just going back to what Dr. Mary said, I think it's so important to think about this because most people hear about social anxiety and they kind of think, well, you know what, I don't really like presentations or, you know, meeting new people is kind of hard for me. Does that mean I have social anxiety? Right? So, I think it's a common thing for us to have a bit of anxiety around this. It's all about the level, right, and how much is it impairing things. So, you know, when we look at actual social anxiety disorder, about 7% of kids have social anxiety disorder. So that's fairly high um, in terms of rates that we're seeing in kids. It's really interesting, too, Dr. Layla, because you had mentioned, you know, um, Typically, it's, it's around, it's these things that are important in adolescence, right? So all of a sudden, when we're kind of heading into adolescence, that's when Friends become more uh, important in our lives. It's also when we become more aware of other people's opinions, right? So we start to have that, you know, what does this person think of me? As a kid, you don't think about, as a young child, you don't think about those things so much. But as you're going into, you know, kind of pre-adolescence and then into adolescence, you're so much more aware of what other people are thinking. So we usually see social anxiety start to develop between the ages of 8 and 15, which kind of hits that developmental period. Um, in terms of how it develops, so sometimes it starts gradually. Sometimes it, it might be a child who just has a very shy temperament, maybe a more anxious temperament, and you see it start to develop really slowly. And over time, you see it kind of affecting them more and more. In other situations, there might be an event or a situation that was extremely embarrassing, or or possibly something traumatic, and then all of a sudden, these symptoms start to emerge. Um, so there's different when we're looking at different causes. There's like I say, there's, there's temperament. Um, there's also a genetic component. So when we're looking at anxiety, we've, we've talked about this in other podcast episodes. There's a genetic component where if you have a parent that's more prone to anxiety, that has more anxiety, you might be more likely to inherit um, some of those genes and be more anxious. We also, um, we know that there's a structure in the brain um, called the amygdala, and for some of us, the amygdala is kind of overactive, and the amygdala is what causes our fear response. And so if our amygdala is overactive, then we're going to have more of that response to fear. Dr. Mary was, was talking about it earlier, where those social situations might cause the amygdala to be more active. And then the last thing is the environment. So sometimes, um social anxiety can be a learned behavior. So as I uh, mentioned before, it could be something that happened to you that caused a lot of embarrassment and you're worried it might happen again, or it can also be modeling. So the people that you're around often, so for example, if your parents are quite, you know, um, shy around other people, or, you know, if they they have trouble meeting other people or avoid social situations, you might be more likely to develop some of those those, um, behaviors as well. So, like I say, it could be inherited, it could be brain structure, it could be environment or some combination of those things.
0: Right. And, you know, I think you bring up such a great point when we're talking about the role of parents in, you know, a child's anxiety. And I think it often does play a significant role. So, not only from a, a genetic predisposition, like you mentioned, but this idea of, um, not only how parents are modeling how they deal with anxious situations, but also how they deal with their children in anxious situations. So for example, if you have a, t- a teen who likes to avoid social situations or skip school because they're not feeling great or really anxious in the morning, um, that will play a role in how your child or your teen uh, copes with anxiety and um, whether or not they're able to overcome it. So um, I think that's a really good point is, is the parent's role and, and how much they can contribute um, in the treatment progress as well, right?
2: Yeah, Dr. Layla, I I think, you know, sometimes parents, and and I'm sure you, you both see this as well, they might blame themselves and say, well, they developed this because this is how I am. Um, but it can actually be such a helpful thing in therapy because they can relate and they can understand and so they can be working on some of these things as their kids are working on them or maybe it was something that they've overcome in the past and they understand it so there's something really beautiful that can happen there as well when the parents have some of those similar behaviors to what they're seeing in their kids
0: absolutely yeah i agree Um, Dr. Mary, what are some common thinking mistakes that people make when they have social anxiety?
1: Yeah, so this is something we talked about a little bit in our previous episodes that were focused on anxiety, But oftentimes, individuals who experience anxiety, they develop these types of thought patterns that we call either thinking traps or cognitive distortions. And people who are socially anxious, they tend to make certain types of cognitive distortions more often than others. So some of those examples are things like magnification, um, so really magnifying a problem or assuming that everyone is staring at them for a negative reason. Reason, um mind reading, um, usually reading somebody's mind in a negative way. So for example, that girl thinks what I said was so stupid. Um, catastrophizing is a really big one. Um, so maybe thinking that something that happened was a little that was a little bit embarrassing is totally the end of the world. Um, I can't believe I just said that. No one will ever want to talk to me again. Um, overgeneralizing. So, things like um, feeling like everyone hates, so everybody hates what I'm wearing today, even because one person made a comment or something like that. Um, Also, labeling. Themselves, So maybe they didn't do well on a test or something and interpreting that as I'm so stupid. Um, And then also perfectionism is a really big one for individuals with social anxiety, feeling like they have to do everything perfect. And if they don't, everyone will notice. And this can cross lots of different areas from school to sports to friends to appearance. So lots of different areas where we see this perfectionism come up.
0: Yes, and I agree. I think that's one that often comes up in clinical practice. I think a lot of children and teens feel this immense amount of pressure to perform and to be competitive and Mm -hmm. to excel. Um, And it can often result in a lot of anxiety, especially socially, because, um, you know, in the real world, no one is perfect. And we all make mistakes on a fairly regular basis, uh, either in things that we say, uh, or socially with friends. And, um, you know, if you have that perfectionist mentality, it can be really uh, distressing for most people okay great thank you so dr jen um, we've been discussing how anxiety can play tricks on our minds and cause us to um, have some thinking mistakes now let's talk a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy which is an evidence-based therapy that has been shown to work really well for social anxiety and many other types of anxiety disorders. Can you tell us a little bit more about CBT? I know we've discussed it in a previous podcast episode. So, um, you know, for our listeners, please check those episodes out on anxiety disorders. Um, But maybe just for a brief review, can you remind us what CBT is and how it can help for social anxiety? For
2: sure, so CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is really all about the connections between our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors, right? So, just to give a simple example, um, let's say we're about to do a presentation, and, you know, what I often will have kids do in my office is I'll say, okay, what what sort of thoughts might you have for the presentation, right? Um, And we'll often come up with, okay, what's maybe an anxious thought? Right, So maybe you have the thought, I'll do terribly. People are gonna laugh at me. Um, it's not going to go well. Right, So if you're having those thoughts, then we look at how are you gonna feel? Well, you're probably gonna feel a bit intimidated. You're probably gonna feel anxious. You're probably gonna be a bit scared. And then how are you going to do, or what's the behavior or the outcome, right? So you're probably not gonna do as well because of all those anxious thoughts that are driving the anxious feelings that then make you actually feel more anxious in the moment and it makes it more difficult to perform, right? Now, we'll look at the other side of that where we say, okay, well, what if we change our thoughts? What if we work on maybe thoughts that are gonna be more helpful, right? So saying to ourselves, I've done this before, I've worked really hard, I'm well-prepared, I'm going to do my best. You know some of those thoughts that are actually going to help us. And then we look at, okay, if we have those thoughts, what sort of feelings do we have? And often we'll feel more confident, a little bit more comfortable. We might still feel a bit anxious and that's okay, right? Because we're feeling a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more confident. And then we look at how does that affect the outcome? Well, we're probably going to perform better. The presentation is probably going to go better because we're having those positive thoughts, those helpful thoughts from the onset. So that's kind of a basic um, idea of how CBT works. And it's not always as simple as that. We completely understand that it's not so easy to change. We're trying to shift our thoughts a little bit. So, you know, when we're in the office and we're going to be working with a child that has social anxiety, there's a few things that we'll cover. So one of the important pieces is learning some relaxation exercises. So relaxation exercises have also been covered in the previous uh, episodes. We have, um, I know, an episode on box breathing as well as mini mental vacations. Um, and there's some great ideas around different ways to just sort of relax and calm your body down. Um, what's really important about the relaxation exercises is that It doesn't completely make the anxiety go away, and that's never been our goal, but it's more just learning how do we manage the anxiety, and it also makes us feel a little bit more empowered when we have these tools to just bring the anxiety down a little bit. So that's one piece is learning those relaxation exercises. Um, The second piece that we work on is challenging our anxious beliefs. So Dr. Mary has already talked about some of the thoughts that we might have, and so then in the, in the office, we'll actually work on how are we gonna challenge those thoughts? And it's great to be able to write those down. And in the moment, it's a little more challenging sometimes, but if we do it ahead of time and kind of think, okay, what thoughts are gonna be driving my anxiety? We come up with those thoughts and then we challenge them. So some of the ways that we might challenge them, we'll just shoot off some of the, the questions that we might use to challenge anxious thoughts. So things like, has this happened before? Um, What is the evidence that supports my thought and what's the evidence that does not support my thought? Um, Does the opinion of other people really matter? Am I responsible for the entire conversation? Um, That can be a really valuable one because often kids will feel like they have to be so interesting and animated and they feel responsible. Um, So just checking in on that, um, asking what's the worst thing that can happen, right? And often with this one, we don't just ask what's the worst thing, but we'll actually say, okay, if it does happen, what are some ideas and getting the kid to come up with some ideas and then we can if it does happen um, we also look at questions like uh do i have to please everyone reminding ourselves no one's perfect everyone makes mistakes um also one that i really love is what would i say to my best friend if they were having this thought and kind of taking taking yourself from an outside perspective and kind of looking in and saying oh here's some of the encouragement i would use Um, And uh, the last one uh, that I often talk about is just that no one is perfect and everyone makes mistakes. So we've already kind of covered that a little bit, but just that reminder of that it is okay if we do make mistakes, we can manage it, we can recover from that. So again, that's kind of the first two pieces. The one is the relaxation exercises. The next one is um, just kind of challenging some of those anxious thoughts and understanding our anxious thoughts. The third one is really important And it has to do with exposure to the fear. So we've talked before about our natural response when we're feeling anxious or worried about something is we want to avoid, right? So if we're feeling anxious, for example, about meeting new people, we might want to avoid meeting new people. If we're feeling anxious about presentations, we might want to avoid presentations. The problem with that is then we don't get the practice and we don't learn that, hey, when I do this, it actually goes okay. Or when I do this, I actually can manage it, right? So the idea behind exposure is, small steps in terms of exposing ourselves to whatever that fear is and learning that we can handle it. So in uh, in sessions, we'll often come up with what's called a fear ladder, where we're looking at all sorts of different steps towards um, whatever the ultimate goal is. So for example, if someone is dealing with social anxiety and they really are having difficulty interacting with people, we might come up with some different ideas. Okay, what are some baby steps towards being able to interact with people. So someone, a next step might be something like saying hi to someone. Then we might look at something more like um, asking a question or complimenting someone. And then we'll get into more challenging steps like asking someone a more open question, like how was your weekend? And then maybe even talking about how your weekend went. Right, so we'll come up with a bunch of different ideas that go from kind of the easiest step to the hardest step. And we'll have the, the individual rate how hard is each of these steps, right? And what we want to do, and it's interesting because different steps are different for different people, right? So what we want to do is start with what's the easiest step and then getting to the more difficult step. And what we find is that those easy steps really help to develop confidence, right? So somebody will do something like, oh, you know what? It wasn't so hard to say hi to someone. I thought it was going to be really hard, but it actually wasn't too bad. And they feel good and they feel confident. And then we can move to the next step. So that's kind of the basic idea behind um, the, the exposure and how the, the fear ladder works. That's great, thank you,
0: Dr. Jen. Uh, lots of great
2: information there. So,
0: um, you know, just to summarize what you said, relaxation techniques is kind of the first step. Challenging your anxious beliefs is the second. Um, And then lastly, you know, doing some exposure in a gradual way and perhaps setting up some um, kind of little experiments where you're testing the waters a little bit with your social comfort, right? Um, So one that often comes up, I know, in clinical practice is this idea, like, again, this fear of making mistakes, right? Like when you're talking to a friend or when you're answering a question in class, quite common, Um, so I'll tell my clients like, well, let's practice actually not saying the right answer or, you know, saying something a bit silly or ridiculous in a conversation. And I want you to observe how people react to you. Is it really as bad as you're making it out in your imagination or in your head, right? Or the anxiety is telling you it's going to be the end of the world, but people most of the time don't notice when you're making these mistakes or errors. And they're certainly not judging you as critically as you're judging yourself.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That could be a great one too, Dr. Layla, to role play, right? So either with the clinician in session or with a parent, right? Where it's just kind of imagining and kind of working through, you know, if you said something silly or said the wrong thing or even answered a question wrong, you know, how is the other person going to respond? That's right.
0: And, you know, as you're as you're talking, I'm thinking about a parent modeling making those social mistakes out in public, right, or with, with friends of their own, or when they're at the shopping mall, maybe saying something silly when they're making a purchase. So just modeling for their child, you know, it's okay to be um, imperfect or to make mistakes or to not always have the right thing to say, um, and that it's not the end of the world and not everybody is going to judge you for it, right?
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, um I just wanted to add quickly, you know, Dr. Jen was talking previously about just ways to shift our thinking a little bit when we're having some of these cognitive distortions. And one of the helpful or one a way that can be helpful for some people is to actually shift from anxiety into excitement. And it sounds like a really, really weird concept to do that. But there's a very close relationship between the physical sensations of anxiety and the physical sensations of excitement. So if you imagine going on a roller coaster, for example, sometimes we don't know whether we're totally excited or totally anxious. Um, So when we're shifting our thinking, trying to focus on being excited can be very helpful for some people. So before a presentation, if we're imagining maybe the feeling we get when we're finished, and we're like, I'm excited, you know, I'm looking forward to this, and we're actually telling ourselves that going into it, it can have a nice impact um, on our confidence.
0: I really like that suggestion. It's almost like a, a cognitive reframe of the symptoms, right? So now yeah. the symptom is not a negative; it's a positive, and it means um, something in a more positive way than saying it's the end of the world. And the, these physical symptoms mean something is wrong, right? Um, I like that a lot. That's great.
2: I was just gonna. I was just gonna add one more thing uh, as well, and that's, um, and I don't know if you guys have had this in your practice, but sometimes kids will say you know, for example, if they're going to give a presentation and they have a lot of anxiety about presentations, they'll say, well, I don't have any anxiety unless I'm right up in front of the class about to give the presentation. And so I can practice it in front of my mom or my dad or record it or do all these different things. And it's not causing anxiety. And so sometimes the other thing we'll do is actually try and induce some of the symptoms of anxiety, right? So it might be something like, okay, we're going to run on the spot, which is going to make our heart rate go faster um, and maybe make our, our cheeks turn red, right? So it's kind of some of those symptoms we might experience when we're anxious. And we're going to do that and then try the presentation. And it's just, again, it's just kind of, yeah. what does it feel like when you're having some of those symptoms and you're giving the presentation? And that's kind of another way, uh, you know, if somebody's not experiencing it, unless they're in the situation, that we can actually induce some of those symptoms and see how it goes. Yeah.
1: I really like that one, Dr. Jen, because I think too, it also helps our body get used to coming down from those physical sensations. It helps our body get used to experiencing them and not always in the kind of anxious context. So it really helps facilitate our use of coping strategies in the moment when we're actually anxious.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's great. So I thought we would shift our conversation more toward what parents can do to help their kids um, when they're experiencing social anxiety. And I think we kind of mentioned some of the uh, tools and strategies throughout the podcast. Um, But you know, the importance of parents becoming the coach for their children, and cheerleaders for them and helping them plan and organize how they're going to do some of that gradual exposure versus, you know, um, I think sometimes parents when they don't know any better will sometimes push children maybe too far too quickly initially or, or, accommodate the uh, avoidance of the situation, right? Like, oh, you don't want to go sc- to school today, honey. That's fine. Just stay home until you feel better, yeah. right? So we don't want to do either extreme. We want to kind of go in the middle ground where we're having a conversation with our child and really planning um, how we're going to do the exposure with them and sending that up. Like, okay, we're, you know, where is that hierarchy going to be? What's the first step all the way to the last step? What are the rewards you would like? And wh- where would you like to start here, right? Um, so really being on board with them in that the development of that um, exposure process.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to add to I think those are really great points. And I really like how you're talking about it as you know, your child's Coach, um, also trying to focus on recognizing and talking about the anxiety as something external from your child. And doing this, it allows you to really be on a team with your child against the anxiety versus parent against child, right? Um, so it makes a big difference. I think something else that's important to consider is that we really need to be patient and understand that what's happening for our child or our teens, it our teens is that they're nervous system is responding to these social situations in the same way that it would if they were experiencing a threatening situation like a shark or a bear. Um, So their body doesn't know the difference, right? It's misperceiving the social situation as being threatening to them. And they're having a very natural response to that, right? Makes total sense. If we see a shark, we need to get out of there as fast as we can, right? So totally makes sense that they're experiencing that. Um, But I think it's important for parents to understand, that the process isn't always linear, right? We're really fighting against um, this body's reaction and we celebrate these small successes and we really, you know, kind of look for the setting these steps that are manageable for kids. And I think just one more thing um, to that point that can be extremely helpful is providing your child with a lot of education around the science behind what's happening when we feel anxious, because it's one of the ways that we can get buy-in from them. It's really hard to tell a child, hey, you know what, go and face the thing you're really afraid of when they don't understand why they're being asked to do that and everything in their body is telling them not to. So I think that education piece can be a really helpful one as well.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, some really valid points there. So before even getting into the exposure, we want to make sure that our children are educated on why we're doing it and how it's going to be helpful, and why it's so important for them to um, face their fears and challenge some of those anxious thoughts too, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think another important point in terms of parenting strategies that we've already talked about is just this idea of role modeling for our children, um, how to, you know, face our fears and how to cope with anxiety and how to sometimes um, take a step out of our comfort zone and do things that maybe we wouldn't usually do in order to kind of uh, grow some level of tolerance for anxiety provoking situations. Dr. Jen I wanted to ask you, can you revise with our parents how we know um, or when we know social anxiety is becoming a significant problem versus something that maybe is, you know, minimal in presentation? Like, how do we know when it's a big problem, we should seek
2: professional help? Right. So I think that's a great question, because like we talked about before, a lot of these having a lot of these thoughts and, and some of these worries is is pretty normal for this developmental stage, right? So I think it's important for parents to understand that having some of these thoughts sometimes is okay and even expected but when it becomes more of an issue is when it causes significant distress is one thing so if it's really upsetting to the child if it's really affecting them in a negative way it's causing a lot of stress um, that would be one one reason to kind of say okay maybe we need to get a bit more help here the other thing is if it's causing some sort of impairment right so for kids some of the important things are their social lives their 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 school, um, their extracurricular and their family lives. So if it's really causing a lot of impairment in any of those areas, that's a good indicator of, hey, maybe we need to get a little bit more help um, from a professional and and get some ideas for how to help our child cope with these these difficulties. The other things that are important to look for, and we've mentioned these in other podcast episodes, but just some of the big red flags. So, you know, if there's a lot of very sad, very negative feelings, um, obviously, if there's suicidal thoughts or thoughts of self coming in, those are all red flags to make sure that we're getting the support that we need for our children. Um, The last point I wanted to make, too, is just around just a making sure that some of the social anxiety, what looks like social anxiety could actually be driven by other things. So for example, if there's bullying that's happening at school, Um, just to kind of assess and check. And the more we can communicate with our kids, the better. So just finding out if there's something else that might be causing some of these feelings, right? So for example, if a child really is being targeted and, and picked on, it might actually be really hard for them. Some of these things that we're saying today, like trying to interact with kids, well, maybe it's not the best idea. So just kind of assessing the situation beforehand can be really important as well.
0: Yeah, that's a really valid point, I think, around the bullying, right? Sometimes the social anxiety is adaptive given the circumstances, or there's a good reason for it. So, just making sure we're ruling out any significant um, contributors like that, right? Before we jump into trying to treat it um, from the wrong angle. Um, And the only other point I wanted to elaborate on, Dr. Jen, was just this idea of like impaired functioning or significantly affecting a child. So, that can look different ways, right? That could be you know, a child who doesn't want to go to school or doesn't want to go to that party Friday night and just completely, you know, stays home or self isolates and that sort of thing. But then there are also a lot of children who are are more high functioning, but still have high levels of distress. So they may still go to school every day or go to those parties on Friday, um, but they're not sleeping the night before and they're staying up all night worrying about, you know, these social scenarios, or they're complaining a lot on the way to school, or they're experiencing a lot of physiological symptoms of stress and anxiety on their way there, right? So um, it can look different for different children, um, and also depending on the age right um, we know younger children often uh, will report you know the physical symptoms before they'll say hey mom dad you know I'm really yeah. feeling stressed about going to school today they might say I have a tummy ache instead right so just making sure you're looking out for all the different ways um, this impairment in functioning can present in children developmentally okay great um, so I think that summarizes our podcast today, we like to end our podcast episodes with a quick summary of three coping skills um, to address, you know, the issues at hand and in this case, social anxiety. Um, Dr. Jen, Dr. Mary, what are three coping skills um, that we can summarize today that could be helpful for children experiencing social anxiety?
1: Yeah, so I'll just start um, with one. The coping strategy I just wanted to mention is that anxiety in small amounts really isn't bad. It's very, very normal. It serves a function um, and it's important. And the goal of treatment is not to actually eliminate the anxiety entirely. It's really to help children and teens learn to manage it um, because we know that if it's too intense, um, it might interfere with our connection to important things in our life. So yeah, just recognizing that anxiety in small amounts is okay. And we're just looking at managing it um, when it becomes more intense.
2: Um, Another point that I'd like to make is just how important it is. We've talked about this, but for the, the, Parents really empower the child, right? So we kind of talked about it almost as though the parent's like a cheerleader, you know? And so I think really trying to be understanding, being patient, um, and also just really being proud of the small achievements, right? What we're asking kids to do is actually really challenging and really hard for them. So I think that understanding and recognizing that and then really being happy with them when they're making some of these small steps towards their big goals. That's great. And,
0: you know, I think just to summarize all together, just knowing that we can overcome our social anxiety by challenging our beliefs, not avoiding situations that make us uncomfortable or nervous, and learning to face our fears slowly and gradually. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen and Dr. Mary for joining me today to talk about social anxiety for our listeners. And I'd just like to remind our listeners to check out the link to our resources included in the podcast episode description um, for other helpful tips and strategies and different websites and book recommendations. Thanks again for listening. And we look forward to our next podcast episode.